The Americans had tried to cross the Rapido River and uh, advance into the Leary Valley just to the left of Casino. Uh, but the American 36th Texas Division was slaughtered there. Unfortunately, the Mark Clark got General to take his division across the Leary, the Leary River and uh, and the Germans just slaughtered them. They, they didn't do it properly. So that was the, really the first battle of which the Americans got pushed back. Um, then they called on the New Zealand and the 4th Indian Division to have a go. Courage and Valour, the New Zealanders in the Italian campaign of World War II. Episode 4, Casino, Part 1. The Courage and Valour podcast is the story of ordinary New Zealanders who served and fought to liberate Italy from fascist and Nazi rule during World War II. In mid-January 1944, the second New Zealand division was withdrawn from the front line at Orzonia, having failed to take that town in the face of both strong German defences and a bitter winter snowstorm. The division was now needed across the other side of Italy. They convoyed in secrecy across the Apennine mountain range and regrouped north of Naples known as Peter Montalief to prepare for the next phase of battle. We weren't told we were going to go to a, a, a casino, we were told that we were going, going over to do some training, so... They told us we had to take off all our badges, uh, our uh, New Zealand flashes, uh, and all that sort of thing. And we went across over the Appenines, which took about three or four days. We were relieved by an Indian division from memory. John Bell was with 27 Machine Gun Battalion. And uh, we weren't told where we were going. We had removed all our... Uh, insignia and everything from our trucks and our uh, uh, uniforms and uh, we moved at night. Well, this, these trucks that we on, they were mostly 30, 30 hundredweights, the crammers all in there. And the hardest thing was that was travelling in trucks was when you want to urinate. Now that would be the hardest thing to do was to try and urinate while a truck was going along the road around about 15, 20 mile an hour. Anyhow, there were a few compulsory stops on the way which helped the man out. Moving the New Zealand division was not unlike moving it from the west coast to the east coast in New Zealand. Because you've got planes on one each side, you've got a mountain range in the middle, and you had to get across. So we got across. I drove the jeep and with the rest of the plenty came in their, in their truck and there was the whole convoy of us. It was a jeep and two, three tonnes, a jeep and two, three tonnes. And uh, it wasn't until in the morning uh, our truck uh, came out of a, uh, a bit of a valley overlooking the uh, area and we saw Mount Vesuvius. And we knew then where we were heading. Then we came out by um, Vesuvius, and it was in eruption. 
and we passed by it between it and those seas so we were pretty close to it two miles away I suppose at the most and there was a heavy cloud uh, in the sky you couldn't see anything and it was dark and up there in this sky, cloud was a round ring pink round ring and we looked at this what the hell was that and you know it was the crater of Vesuvius that must have been red hot lava and that the reflection from that lava was on the, on the cloud yeah. and I believe we just short of casino for a start didn't we because I remember I saw a yank the trucks, trucks have been running over a, a yank on the road I remember that quite well we ended up uh, uh, in amongst uh, olives and uh, it was a very pleasant little place and there we stayed for two or three weeks with leave to uh, uh, Naples and uh, leaves to uh, Pompeii, leaves to Pompeii and uh, we did a lot of route marching to keep our fitness up. Morris Pratt was in the Six Field Company New Zealand Engineers. They formed the New Zealand Corps there, uh, General Freiburg in charge. General Kippenberger was in charge of the New Zealand Division. We had a chap with us. He, later on he was officer. Later on he was the mayor of one of the villages up Wilhelm. Auckland, and he was a bloody crank, I reckon. He was always booby-tracking things, and not far from, we had a place called Pedmont Leaf, and not far from there was a German ammunition dump that had been overrun, and this coon's going around there booby-tracking stuff, and he booby-trapped this bloody ammunition dump, and it started to explode, and it actually, the explosion killed one of our men. We was having mess at night, and the bloody bomb, uh, shell started, shrapnel started falling down. And this two jokers working in the cookhouse, one went that way around the truck and the other went that way. And as I met, a bloody bit of shrapnel hit this joker across the back of the neck, killed him. I think the Germans already knew that New Zealand troops were coming over. Everybody seemed to know who we were. And, and uh, we went, we did our training there. We was there. Ped Montalief, and then I had this idea that we was going to break through Casino and be motorised infantry and they'd jump off a truck doing 50 mile an hour and chase the Huns and then come back, jump on it again while it was still moving. And we used to go out at night practice on this. But anyway, we shifted close to the casino and we left there and went straight into casino. Well in front of casino there is a pla another quite high point called uh, Mount Trochia and we moved up behind Mount Trochia without seeing anything of casino until we came round the bend and there it was. Uh, the thing that stood out 
was the uh, uh, monastery on the top. The town of Casino was not readily uh, seeable, if that's a word, because it, it was sort of tucked around the corner a bit. But the monastery really stood out. Casino was an ancient town overlooked by a famous Benedictine abbey that towered over the township on nearby Monte Casino, also known as Monastery Hill. Also skirting the town was the smaller Castle Hill with a small castle on top and Hangman's Hill, so called due to the remnants of what had previously been a cable car to the abbey, but after the first battle of Casino, the damaged structure on top of the hill resembled a gallows. The town itself was a gateway to the Lurie Valley, which led all the way up to the Italian capital city of Rome. Casino was a key junction for the railway and Route 6, the main road to Rome. The Allies needed to take it, and the Germans needed to hold it. The result would be four major battles in a tiny town that was completely destroyed. The second and third battles had New Zealanders in the vanguard of the attacks, and the fourth battle also included New Zealand artillery in the thick of the action. As the men of the division first entered the town, they were assigned to their own designated positions, spreading out along the lines and in many cases relieving very tired American units that had been fighting some weeks already. We were assigned an area. Uh, uh, that uh, assignment is done by uh, divisions, uh, battalions, uh, companies, platoons, down to sections. And uh, once we got closer, we realised we were in, in trouble because people started to shoot at us. We went by truck as far as we could because uh, the, the roads uh, were horribly overcrowded. Everybody was wanting to move up there in their trucks. Uh, the uh, French, the Americans, the New Zealand artilleries, everybody, and, and of course there was very, very little road space. So we eventually had to get off our trucks and carry our guns, and we were to go into position up a dry creek bed, but nobody told us that after a couple of days of rain, as there had been, the dry creek it was no longer dry. And we waded up this creek bed with water up to our knees. It was supposed to have been cleared of uh, anti-personnel mines. Uh, and we were going up there in the dark, of course, by this time. And uh, we'd stopped because there'd been flares they must have heard us in there and they, they put flares up over us. And one of our boys looked up and there, tied to the branch of a, of a shrub, was an anti-personnel mine. And how we'd missed the trigger, the Lord alone knows, but we'd missed the trigger. And uh, we could have lost half a, a couple of gun crews just by that. But fortunately there was no more. And we got uh, up and then we got a call from headquarters uh, to say we'd better move further back up on Mount Trochia 
because the uh, infantry who were to be in front of us had got lost. And this used to happen when you're going into places in the dark. So we very, very quickly uh, heeded the, the advice and moved back up. How far was our valley? Well, we weren't in a valley at we all. Don't. No, we were on the side of the, you know, the monastery yeah. hill was um, the Adriatic um, mountains and, and they came out and stopped and this, the monastery hill is the last feature. Oh, you were up there. Uh, that's, we were sort of up the valley facing Mount Cairo. Oh yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. and the monastery was there and the Mount Cairo was, was there. Yeah. We looked directly down over the town. Did you? No, we didn't. Um, no. And the monastery hill, which yeah. is a sort of a, yeah. Yeah. A, a bit of a knob on the side of yeah. monastery hill, uh, where the castle is, that was straight looking at us. Yeah. When we went to casino, first got there, our, we were the Americans said, and they'd been in there. And when we got there, we were on the left-hand side of the main road, and um, the, well, we found a couple of American trucks. The engines were still going, but there was nobody there. So we got them. And we also got a Jeep. The Americans took off and left them. The engines going, still down by the river. So we got them. 21 Battalion began patrolling and scouting for ways to cross it. Bluey Homewood was on one of these patrols when he took the first prisoner captured in Casino by the New Zealand troops. We had Fitzgibbons, our officer. He's a, he's a good officer too, old Fitz. He just turned up and uh, we, we moved over there and relieved the ganks and all that and we're in this castle and then we, because over the other side of, of uh, Casino, there's a town. And he's sitting up on the bank. Actually, this is where the Yanks, they went across there. They lost, I think it was 2,500 that night. In one, one night, I think it was 2,500. Yeah, that's a lot of man to lose. Anyway, they got chucked out. So we were, at that stage, we were going to see where we could get across. And the, the, uh, the repeater come down like that, went around there where you are and back there and then back down there. And of course, you always... Where you're going to put a bridge over, you always put it over around the bend. That's where the where the current's the slowest, you know. Yeah. So anyway, but Fitzson then and Sandy, they were supposed to 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 uh, fix up the bridge, and there was Abdul and I and Jock. We were the covering party, and I had a Tommy gun and my mags. That's all I had. That's all we all had, and. Uh, it's a bit of a moonlight night, you know, we were down there. So they went on down there, old Fitz and that, and we spread out along this river and like that. And uh, old Abdul, he had the Bren gun and two mags. So we're there. So Fitz was about two bloody hours there because he was thorough, you know, and Sandy was pretty good. Sandy was a good soldier. Anyway, uh, uh, that's why Sandy was all there. So he said, when we come back, we had a bit of a powwow there. And Fitz said, well, I'll, I'll lead out. And I said, well, I'll take the last man, because that's, he had to be the last man. And he had Sandy. So we're coming up this bloody creek. And it's had those sort of 
there's no leaves on it because you know and all that those bloody things about, about 20 20 or 12 feet high and we come around there and then we you could hear jerry carrying because used to the spando bloody belts used to rattle you could hear him hey eh? you know and i hear these bloody spando belts rattling and i i'm because i'm back about 200 yards from fitz i suppose at least and i thought shit you know I thought, anyway Next thing, they set the spando up there, and they opened up, and there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying, and because the spando does 1700, and it's just like a kid running a stick along a tin fence, you know. Ah, oh, Jesus, where are they going to town? And I said, shit, I didn't know what I should do anyway. So anyway, sort the thing, I see Jerry coming down the other side of the creek. But well, once he got over the other side of the creek, he had us. We were on this side. So, shit, I jumped into the creek, and it's about up to here with me. It was bloody middle of bloody winter, you know. Christ, you, yeah, you wouldn't get you in there now. The 12 man wouldn't push me in. I jumped across the creek, and I got it just around the, the tree. And I I got him about here to the bloody sink. Down he went. He told the world about it. I give him a bloody burst, and down he went. And I thought, well, now, if I, if they get me, they're going to kill me. That, that's natural. That's, I thought, well, uh, this is goodbye to New Zealand. I thought at that stage. So I bloody hang on there. And he had another fella coming down. And, of course, I could hear the officer yelling out. He, he's yelling out in German and that. But he was there. And uh, the Spandau would have another bloody go. And he, he bent over him. And I got him too. I got three. I got three, and then, and then I tried to get my bloody mag on again. I was shaking like a bloody leaf up with cold, and uh, and that I, I couldn't get my bloody mag on again. Anyway, I got it on again, and I thought, well, this is goodbye New Zealand. I'll bloody take as many as I can. I thought, I've got three. I've got three. Anyway, uh, I, I was yell out to Fitz and Sandy and never got any reply. So then I yelled out to... To, uh, to Abdul, we used to call him Abdul because he used to have a bloody moustache. He spent all day working on this bloody moustache, you know, big dark filly. And he spent all day on the old Abdul. And uh, I yelled at him to get out. But when I got back across the bank, I couldn't get up it. My bloody feet were slipping down. I, and I put my tummy gun on the top of the bank and I tried to get up it. I got up it in the bloody finish. Anyway, uh, old Abdul, and they took off. So they're gone, and they went across there and up the side, the, uh, up the bloody paddock. And I managed to catch them up then. And uh, Sandy turned up. He turned up then. And I said, where's Fitz? Oh, he said, he's back down there. So I said, ship, we've got to get him. We've got to get him. We're not let go without Fitz. We went back down, and he, uh, uh, the bloody, he, he broke all his jaw and everything here. And it's because it knocked him out. I bugger if I know how I got him, but I had him on my back. I got him, eh? And I staggered back over, and old Sandy then picked his legs up and carried him, and I carried him there. We got him up there. So these Germans are making a bloody noise, eh? They were all bloody because got those fellas wounded and that. And uh, the officer was yelling out at the wicket here, yelling out. Anyway, we took Fitz up, up to the, up to, uh, a B company had a platoon there, uh, and uh, took Fitz up there. So then I went up to 
uh, what was his bloody name? Oh, it was Bunny, Bunny Abbott. I liked him. He's, oh, he, he's my idol. He, he was there and Alf Boss was there because Alf's a, 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 they were in the casa and they, he's, a, he's the eye, eye sergeant. And so uh, I said, oh, they read this and I told him what had happened and that. Well, Bluey said, will you go back and get a prisoner? And uh, I said, yes, if I can take Sandy. So I went back down to this bloody platoon was there. Uh, this fellow become my officer later on. And he, I had a, and if I could have got a section, I would have taken, I would have got that gun and everything. And he wouldn't give me a section. He said, I, I, I have no authority to shift any man. At that stage, my blood was up and I could have got that bloody section because they were so shot to pieces, you know. Anyway, uh, we go back down, Sandy and I, and we, yeah, they're still going to town, these Jerry's. They, they, that's one thing they got wounded in that, they used to go to town. A bloody old Kiwi had bloody grunt and lay there. But the old Jerry's, they used to tell everybody about it, eh? Anyway, uh, we go down there, and there's, of course, there's heaps of stones where the old guys pick up the, the paddocks and the stones. I see one coming from this way. He one coming over this way. And uh, as he come down, since he come down, I round the corner, and I said, "Stick him up, you rotten bastard!" He, you asked old Sandy. I said, "Stick him up, you rotten!" And he went, "Camarade!" I said, "Silencia!" That's silence, you know. I said, "Silencia, silencia!" And uh, anyway. I ripped him and old Sandy gives him one on the bloody chops. I said, don't knock him out, Sandy. Okay, don't knock the bugger out. I said, we've got to keep... So we run up the bloody road with him and uh, we took him in. And by this time after, Sandy had given him a chop and the thing and I'd give him a few. Oh, before we got there, we had to we had to hit the bloody dirt because old Jerry firing the mortars over to get these fellas out. They're firing the mortars over. And uh, old Sandy and I... Jump in the bloody ditch. Old Jerry could have jumped on top of <laughs> oh, it. We weren't worried about this bloody Jerry, eh? We, we jumped. Uh, and he, he could have got us. And Sandy said, Christ, he said, you know, look back there. He said, luck of that bloody Jerry didn't get up and, and uh, kick us in the guts. <laughs> and anyway, he had the wind up. So we got him up and that's when he told the whole bloody lot. And uh, anyway, and then another one went further over and gave himself up to A Company. He got two out of that. And and they they told us a whole lot of uh, info about this Aquila line because he and they'd come over to lay mines. Yeah, they didn't lay any bloody mines that night. But old Kippenberg, I got next day. I, I got a thing come from Kippenberg to thank the the patrol for getting the prisoner. Yeah, it was bloody me who got him. Yeah. But uh, we had a, uh, we found accommodation there in the form of an old house, and uh, we were able to dig our guns in not far from there, ready for the uh, support of the Maori battalion. But uh, while we were there, everybody got lousy from the house. It was infested with lice. And of course, no roof, and uh, we we spent two to three weeks wet and lousy, and we had casualties from that because uh, you'd, you'd scratch, 
and the scratch would go septic. Uh, but it wasn't a very pleasant spot. We were pulled back there and they decided to, that they were going to bomb the uh, monastery. So we were up on, on a bit of a rise there, waiting for the planes to come over. Eventually they came over and they were in waves, B-25s. And it was quite a spectacle to see the, this was the first time actually I'd seen a bombing raid. You see these planes come over and see them open their bumper shells and, and let the bombs out. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't have liked to have been the Germans under that. We went up to uh, about uh, eight kilos away from Casino, I suppose, or, or closer than that, where we watched the first bombing. And there was a, an American 240 millimeter gun. Shit, we'd never seen one like that, that big or, <laughs> or that long. And it was uh, manned by a Negro crew and uh, chalked on the barrel the Widowmaker. And <laughs> of course we were up and Richard, what's that bullshit about that bloody name there? He said, well, when we fires this gun, Mr. Hitler, he just has to count up his men left after this thing has landed. And he said, we're firing a, a gun similar to this one about 20 miles away. And uh, we didn't altogether believe him. <clears throat> but when we got to this position where we were on the ridge, at about 2.30 every morning, we'd... Uh, We'd hear, if you were awake, you'd hear, boom. And this bloody gun had fire, and it was firing at a very high trajectory. And it came to, and, and you heard it going up, and you're lying on your side or your back, and, and you started lying on your back, or lying on your stomach, and You'd be moving around and the bloody thing was going up and then it was coming down and it seemed to speed up as it was coming down. It was like a bloody express train. It was an awful bloody... And it was just skimming our ridge and dropping down under the flat, um, <coughs> swampy ground. Uh, the river Rapido was down there and uh, they'd uh, broken its banks and had flooded this area in front of the casino. It was a very uh, effective sort of a... Uh, barrier to uh, tanks. They couldn't just go across. They had to come along roads, and the roads were taped by artillery. And uh, <clears throat> it was. Uh, but we, we were disturbed by this thing uh, quite a, each night. And uh, you'd look down in the morning, and there were craters, and they were filled with water, and they were bloody enormous craters, bigger than this width of this room, and and about as deep. But of course, they slept. Oh, well, there was a lot of those. I've got photos of it from the ridge. And there's uh, white uh, spots and the black background. And, and, and the, the, the. I tell you what, they were up on the hill there. We give a bugger what they drop on them. Let them drop in there as far as we're concerned, you know. Because the old infantry, they live in a world of their own. They're the sharp boys. We're proud of our bloody selves. But... Your bloody life's not worth two bob, eh? And they can't do anything out the infantry. And as far as we do, we're the guys that got to go. 
Yeah, he looked down the, the barrel of the bloody spout. Down the spout of a barrel. Yeah. They can bomb shit out of the far as we're concerned. Um, so the first attack we had then was on the railway station. The, the Maori battalion were going to take the railway station and the Indian, 4th Indian Division are going to advance through the hills to capture Monte Casino. The countryside around Casino had been flooded by the Germans who had broken the riverbanks in order to prevent easy assault by tanks and troops. This left just a narrow causeway for access into the town itself, which was zeroed in by enemy artillery and mortar fire. So uh, we were going to attack along a railway line. We'd thrown off the railway tracks and uh, made quite a good road, really, once the tracks were off. And that had, uh, took us right into the railway station. But along this track, there were... 12 demolitions which had to be fixed before any anti-tank weapons or tanks could come along to, to follow up after the Maoris. And not many people know this, but um, there was a task force formed called Task Force Baker. It consisted of, uh, I believe, uh, two squadrons of Spitfires uh, American Armoured Division, two infantry companies, one which was D Company, the 23rd Battalion, and I'm not, I can't remember what the other company, who the other company was. And if that Bailey Bridge had gone across, our movement was to head out to San Pedro and, and go around behind um, Casino. And I was actually attached to Task Force B. And Task Force B was going to dash down the road to Casino, turn left in Route 6 at Route 6, and tear around and capture St Angelo. Well, we never did. So the engineers had a big job uh, to, to fill in the demolitions, to build two bridges over the the Rapido River and the Little Rapido River, and um, to get up into the station. While we were there, we went out on a fighting patrol. It was the 17th of February, the night the Marys attacked the railway station. And we was to go down onto the Rapido River to make a noise to draw the fire off the Marys. And we had to take up positions and put in a, a uh, Diversary attack, which which we did. There was a lot of firing of machine guns and throwing of of uh, grenades and rifle shots. And our platoon officer hadn't done a recce of anything. And I was a Bren gunner, and I usually used to put 28 rounds in the mag. But for this particular occasion, we put 30 in it, and I had my valise full of Bren mags, they had about 3,000 rounds of ammunition on me back. And I'm walking down a drain, and there's a pine tree falling over, and it was about that high off the ground. And I couldn't step over it, I walked around that way. And the chap behind me, he stepped over there and went on, and he stepped on a mine, and blew me into the drain. And I got a smack behind the arm and behind the leg. So I crawled out of the drain, 
to see if I could help this joker. Just as I got to him, another chap come along and then the stretcher bearer come along. And so he's, we both stepped out of the road. This other chap stepped on the mine and drew me back into the bloody drain and I got a smack in the face and another bloody bang behind the arm. So they called the bloody show off. And uh, I had to go to hospital and uh, chap come to see me and he said, just so well you never stepped across that bloody pine tree that night, he said, because he said there was a big teller mine there. And he said the weight you was carrying would have set it off. And he said you'd have blown a whole bloody lot of us up. And my first recollection of Casino was the, uh, the capture of the railway station, which was done by the 28th Maori Battalion. And they captured the station. Uh, 24th Battalion was to be the reserve battalion that was to go through past the 28th Battalion and occupy three mounds which uh, evidently existed out at the headwaters or the entrance to the Leary Valley running through to Rome. Rome was about only about 80 k's away up the road. Um, and of course the, uh, the Anzio uh, landing went in, the coast further up, and it was commanded by a useless American general who walked in unopposed virtually and never exploited it and cut the main road and so on. So they nearly got pushed back at Anzio into the sea. So there was a lot of pressure on us to get going and attack, to take the pressure off them. We were able to dig in. Uh, our first firing at Casino, we were not, a, we were unable to dig in because we we're on solid rock, and uh, the wily German gave us a bit of jip over that. <laughs> so we moved our guns into an area where we could dig in and still uh, get onto the sites we were acquired. And we were dug in, and uh, the Maoris, they uh, went in at night, and uh, we supported them, generally, uh, initially firing on their uh, side, just clear of them, and uh, over their heads uh, in front. And once they'd got their... Uh, we were then firing uh, as directed by the, the artillery spotters who were able to look, who were on top of Mount Trochia and had as good a vision into the uh, battle area as the Germans had from uh, their points up on around about the, uh, the monastery. You fire on points and uh, a lot of it's a bit haphazard. You hope you've got the right point. You've aimed at it anyhow. So, um, yeah, we were the reserve, and I remember being on, on sentry down at the river. Um, the engineers had to get so many bridges built to get the tanks over to support the Maori battalion, and they'd captured the railway station. They, they took the station and 
they were to be supported by anti-tank guns and tanks. But the engineers uh, struck a lot of trouble in the ground was absolutely a quagmire and uh, they had to put up uh, bridges in various places and they just didn't make it. Tom McLennan was in the 7th Field Company, New Zealand Engineers. So when the casino episode came on, we went in, as I say, in other words, we had a Bailey bridge up and it was all but completed. And they were putting boards down and you nailed them and New Zealand tanks were over the river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. So, of course, it blew the bridge to pieces and blew it and they fell it. The Maoris took the station, but because the engineers were a bit slow, probably, uh, although, as again, the bulldozer knocked one of the bridges off, off its um, base plate, and had to be put back. This delayed us again. Uh, these things sort of happened, and uh, you can't envisage before. So we were all late on the job, really, and we got up to the tenth demolition, and um, then the Germans started to. There were two more demolitions within the. Uh, marshalling yard, uh, yard of the of the the station, uh, which were not uh, surveyed before, only from aerial photos. They only knew they were there by aerial, aerial photos. So there'd been no reconnaissance. So um, we were up to the tenth demolition, and the Germans started. Um, firing at us with their Nebelwerfer, which was a six-barreled mortar, uh, which threw a mortar about uh, six inches in diameter, and I suppose it was about 18 inches long, quite a big missile. And um, they started firing at us, and they obviously heard the bulldozer, uh, probably thought it was a tank that uh, we had to take shelter. We couldn't um, um, do anything. The mine lifting party couldn't move out just to go further into the marshalling yard. And um, we were eventually withdrawn. So the Maoris were left at the station without any backup, without any uh, anti-tank guns, uh, just without any, any backup at all. So um, they held on for a day and then the following day had to pull out because the Germans counter-attacked with a tank Aubrey Balzer was a member of 28 Māori Battalion. 
the, the story of, of uh, the Maori Battalion and the casino is uh, well written. Um, we uh, got a hiding and um, lost, I suppose, um, 80% of our company in the attack on the railway station and um, there was all sorts of problems of course they couldn't get the tanks across and um, the Germans counter-attacked and uh, gradually blew the uh, station down on top of us and we had to withdraw and um, things were fairly serious for a while because we were very very short of men. As a matter of fact the RSM went into the hospital and he'd look and if you could carry a rifle, right, get out of bed, back to the battalion. This is Marty McRae. Um, and I remember being on picket sentry down at the river and one of the Maori officers came back across the river that had crept away and got away, but there must have been a fair number of them captured there. So they were knocked about quite a bit there. So uh, when daylight came, uh, the uh, German tanks came and with the tanks came infantry and there we did a lot of firing uh, on the infantry and uh, the poor Maoris got really hammered. It, it was the key point. Had we been able to hold the railway station, uh, I'm not the general, but I'm, I'm sure the general thought that uh, he could uh, overcome the swampy ground and get in, get into the valley. Well, they were driven right out. Those those that came got out came out, and uh, in the course of all that, uh, the Germans located our gun pits pretty accurately, and uh, they started to turn the old Nebelwerfer on us, which is a, a rocket, eight rocket. Thing. And uh, so we shifted our gun sights. But the Bailey Bridge missed, uh, never got finished in time and daylight and the Germans took it out. Had that finished in the darkness, our tanks would have gone across. And I had my jeep loaded up with ammunition and God knows what, for days. And we've got half an hour's notice, an hour's notice. I remember at the briefing, um, oh, I can't remember his name, he told me that I'd have to take the ammunition through and then turn back and come back to their uh, last objective. I virtually told I'd have to drive into where there was no bugger and then drive back to them where uh, I don't know how we'd have got on. I, uh, I don't know, in a lot of respects, I, I wish it had gone ahead. We were withdrawn at, uh, at first light that morning of the attack, and they, uh, uh, next night they were going to endeavour to get into the last two demolitions but never happened and the German and the, the Maoris pulled out and therefore the station was still in German hands. The poor uh, uh, dozer driver was being shot at by a sniper and uh, 
he could he had to come down off his off his bulldozer and leave it there. I think they may have got it the next day, but we all we had to shelter and then then we were told to withdraw. But it's amazing that we had a bulldozer right up on the front line. That advance was abandoned from there on, so we were going to then try and take the town um, and the monastery. Uh, they said that we were going to put an attack into the casino, uh, 24th Battalion, they were in this little position up, up a valley and it rained and rained. Uh, the Germans used to have a particular uh, vestige of shelling us, they'd shell us just about every night they'd have a go at us. Uh, the Indians were there, they were down in the valley and uh, they used to get a hang of a hiding there. All the mules used to get uh, killed and there's quite a few people wounded there. So uh, the town was our objective, the 24th Battalion, and no doubt other battalions as well. You, you really don't have a lot of contact with the general outlaw, you know, the whole plan. You know your own plan, where you're going and what you're supposed to do and what you're supposed to attack and so on. Uh, but the, the general plan was to capture and get through and capture Rome. You know, that was the key. That's the prize, Rome. So um, we took over a position on a hill called, on the army maps, 175. Uh, it had been captured by an American unit. I believe they were Japanese, all the volunteers from uh, Hawaii and there'd been some tough fighting there to capture it. Uh, it was on the foothills of Mount Cairo, just close into the town, that we took over this position. Um, there were three dead civilian women in our area that had been caught in the... And that was, it was all rock and stone. Uh, they proposed they became a problem so we found uh, in, there'd been a couple of houses there, and they were, you know, just a wreck, uh, but uh, quite handy because we could use some of the material to build sangers, you see. Um, and we found a bit of an old wicker basket, and so each night some of the boys would go back down onto the flat country and cart up a bit of soil to cover these people. Um, so this was a, a, a devil of a position. Um, we actually looked down on the town of Casino, um, but it was totally dominated by uh, the Germans who were on Castle Hill and they were just out in front of us and looked down on us. Uh, and of course the monastery away further up and that was they had spent a long time fortifying casino, whole truckloads from what I've read since, of material, trainloads had come down from Germany, steel, and, and we could hear them using pneumatic drills and so on. We had a pick and shovel, um, and they were using pneumatic drills. And they put tanks right inside buildings and this sort of thing. Um, so we were there for quite a while in this position. Yeah, it was a nasty place and we suffered uh, some casualties with snipers.
did open the Snipers. Of course, everything is carried into you at night by carrying parties, and those guys, uh, it wouldn't have been a nice job because the enemy knows that uh, at night time, the time everyone's moving, uh, and they know the supply routes. They know there's, there's going to be lots of men and all sorts of things, jeeps perhaps and so on, um, bringing supplies in. So they target those places, you see, uh, with shell fire and such like. So, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a pleasant job being in a carrying party. But their food would come up and anything else we wanted, uh, including uh, any uh, replacements, you know, uh, and one night who should arrive but uh, Norm here. As he said, he'd gone out of the line on the other side with the dysentery, uh, which was probably enemy number two for infantry because you never have enough water to wash your mess tin after a meal. You lick them out or, or do what you can. Um, and we only had biscuits. Um, we, one of the boys had, uh, in the platoon, had acquired, we never stole anything, we just acquired it. Um, he'd stole a little mincer, one of those ones you clamp onto a table and turn the handle. And we used to grind up uh, army biscuits. Uh, and that was our breakfast with a bit of warm water. Um, army, ground up army biscuits. And occasionally uh, we might have had a tin of golden syrup and you could dribble a bit of golden syrup over it, you see. And we kept the supply of this golden syrup in a bag, cloth bag. And on one occasion, uh, our supplies were getting low, so I said to one of the boys, give me a hand and we'll, we'll grind some more biscuits. By this time I was platoon sergeant when we got to casino. Um, just how, I don't know, but I was... Those ahead of me had, had fallen by the wayside. Um, so uh, it took two to do this. It needed one to hold the mincer and turn the handle and someone else to put the biscuits in and hold the bag underneath to catch the as it was ground up. Uh, and we thought we were in a, a position uh, that was safe, um, but it wasn't. A, a German sniper had uh, got himself into a position where he could see us. Um, and uh, he'd let go at us. Uh, the bullet missed me by a thousandth and, and hit my other face, right through his face. Um, that at the time that was the end of grinding biscuits. Uh, it's sad when that happens because you never know. Uh, it looked a terrible wound. Um, patch him up and take him out and he's gone. You see, you don't know whether he's going to die or whether he survived. And I've only found out in less than six months ago that that man survived and his farm, not all that far from here, you know, and I just wish I'd known. Anyhow, um, uh, 
from there, of course, we waited and waited. Oh, that's that same sniper later in the in the day. Later in the day, uh, we spotted his position, um, and uh, I didn't know at the time, but Bob O'Brien uh, was in charge of a, an anti-tank gun, and he was back behind us a little bit. And so just before dark that night, uh, Bob opened up with a 75mm anti-tank gun. And uh, I remember it, gave, it just gave us a one hell of a fright because the shots were coming straight over our head and the, the muzzle blast from a gun like that is pretty considerable. Um, they'd carried the gun up there in pieces and put it together, which must have been a pretty Herculean effort. Uh, and so they took their sniper out with an anti-tank gun which did us a lot of good too. And Bob was in charge of that gun. Uh, and they'd got the gun up there. Uh, 75, I think it was not, uh, American. An American 75 millimeter anti-tank gun. Anti-tank yeah. gun, which you weren't supposed to be, be sniping with. But, yeah. Uh, my boys have been worried by a particular area down in, in the town of Casino and uh, said, what can you do about it? So anyhow, we, we put a couple of armour-piercing high-explosive bullets in through the, the door. And, but mm. I hadn't worked out that I wasn't given permission to do it, number one. And number two was I was firing directly over the head of the cave, a little below the, the gun that yeah. the colonel was in, and the colonel nearly shat himself, so the adjutant told me, yeah. What's the bloody old Bo Brian doing now? <laughs> and so I was up on the mat for actually firing at the enemy. And if they, you went back over the war history, it'd be the first time ever that a sniper had been taken out with a 16 pounder 80 tank gun. At Casino, well, it was more static, and after the first day, you knew the Rangers. And, oh, we occupied a position uh, above the forward quarry at, at Casino. We were about uh, 400 metres, or I suppose could have been a bit more, a little bit less, from the actual village. And we were lobbing bombs down into the village. Our, uh, uh, and mostly the, the firing was at night. Uh, and uh, I, I hadn't gone up with the platoon to occupy this position, but uh, the boss got in touch with me and he said, Patty, he said, we're a bit short on the guns. He said, could you uh, care to help out? I said, bloody oath. I'm sick of being on the receiving end. I'd love to hand a bit out. So I got up there and they, and they said, uh, we were on this bloody ridge that ran towards uh, the monastery and um, there was a peculiar Italian house there. It wasn't a house, it was it was a pig, pig pen really, I think. We had a room, room and it was about the size of this, it was just, just one room, but in the front of it there was a, a built-up rocked wall that formed a three-sided thing that backed onto it and it had had pigs in it at some stage 
And our mortar, well, no, 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 no. We had our mortars down the side of a very steep hill, and uh, one was there, or one was there, and then and, uh, we had our six there. But below us, there was blokes from uh, an English regiment, the um, Chelsea, uh, what's, what's that song about? By the sea, uh, Surrey, uh, a South London uh, bob. Anyway, they were down, and 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 their, their mortars were below us, and ours were. Um, um, so there was twelve mortars there, and when we fired, the Germans counter battery uh, stuff came into action, and uh, and they uh, one of the palms was killed down there. <laughs> they weren't very pleased with us. I said, why don't you stir those bastards up like that? <laughs> I only get very angry, <laughs> make life difficult. Anyway, they said to me, right, well, you go to uh, Bill's gun. There's supposed to be five men on it, but there was two of us. And Ray was a Greek bloody survivor, and he was a real survivor, this bloke. And he said to me, uh, well... We'll get called in the middle of the night. He said, it'll probably be about two o'clock. And he said, uh, the, our troops in in the village of Casino, they'll hear something and they'll say, well, there's an enemy patrol closing in on us. Can you do something about it? And we were lined up. <clears throat> we had a few targets in the town and uh, they'd tell us which one. And so my new gunmate, Ray Corley, he, uh, he said to me, when the phone rings, he said, we've got to be out of bed, down there, it was about from here, the letterbox away, on very steep, rugged stuff. And he said, you've got to get to the gun and, and be firing uh, within uh, about... I think it was about two minutes or something. He said, if you're much longer, it might be too late if there was an enemy patrol assaulting our blood. So, <clears throat> the first night I was there, the phone rang, and uh, uh, Ray, Ray and I, uh, we, we were the blokes that were to fire again, and... Uh, I, I, I whipped my strides on, got my boots on, and I rushed down. And I met Ray coming back. He'd been down to the gun, he'd fired the bloody round, he'd fired six rounds, and he was coming back up to the shelter of the hut. And this happened three times. So on the third time, I said to him, How the hell did you get, a, get your strides on, your boots on, and down there, fire the bloody gun? Uh, and be on the way back before I, I get down there. He said, who the hell do you think has got his pants and his boots on? And there he is standing in his bloody undies and there was a foot of snow. <laughs> well, uh, <coughs> we were there for over a fortnight for bloody hell. And uh, we took casualties there and uh, we, we'd f had a... Uh, Andy, uh, a four-inch mortar issued to us, and so a crew had been picked, and they were behind us for about 
600 meters, I suppose, and uh, <coughs> they they were firing at the enemy when they could, and uh, w one night they rang up and they said, uh, we've got some beer. We should do a bullshit, you don't have beer in the front line, you're not allowed to drink it. They said, well, the canteen bloke... <coughs> Uh, who was back in base, he he, he said uh, issues of beer were, were a bit irregular. You didn't get them uh, right uh, every week. Uh, you just got them when, when it was transport and everything else was available, shipping. And, and uh, he said he was having to turn down stuff because we'd been out of base and we weren't drinking our beer, and he didn't have any mo more, more money to bloody well uh, take stuff that was available. <coughs> so he he used his brains a bit, and he said, "Well, is anyone back on the fringe, not actually in the front line, that could be able to take some beer?" And uh, and uh, this uh, four two cr 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 five men uh, gun crew, they said, "Well." Yeah, well, they were suggested that they they could take a crate of it, and, and a crate was about four four dozen bottles, quart bottles, I think. And so the, this gun crew rang us up and said, uh, "Look, we've got some beer here," and uh, explained how it came to be. They said, "What about uh, two or three of you blokes coming down and <coughs> helping us with it?" No, it was a rough, bloody, horrible night, and between us and them, it was shelled very regularly. <coughs> on a very steep, bloody side of a mountain ridge, we turned them down. In the morning, uh, we couldn't raise them on the phone. Oh, no answer, and we had walkie-talkies and things, and then and, and, uh, radios, and we couldn't raise them. So the boss said, oh, Pat, you and uh, so and so go down and bloody well uh, check them out, will you? <coughs> we got down there and they'd been hit by a nibblewerfer. That's this multi-barreled, it uh, was about five-inch bloody shells. The shells with their propellants in them were nearly a metre long. And they made a horrible noise in the air. They made... <coughs> Oh, shit, the, the noise of them scared the daylight out of you the first couple of times you hit. And there was five or six barrels and they revolved and they bum, 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 bum. And uh, they had apparently, uh, the Germans had apparently um, zeroed in on this bloody thing <coughs> and uh, they opened up in the night and, well, we got down there. The first thing we saw was broken bottles and uh, blood, and it was one of these ovens that the Italians had outside. They were they were about uh, four feet deep, and uh, the, the height of them were uh, in the oven was like that. You know, that that put the fire in it, and then draw the fire out, and and then put the cooking in there. And uh, two blokes had got in there and sheltered there, and. Uh, the uh, the enemy fire had set fire to 
the more ammunition, and there was things, this enemy shells landing and their own ones going off, and these two blokes were in this bloody little thing. They were both little fellas, and uh, I found a part of a dental plate and a lot of blood in the uh, in this bloody oven, and uh, <coughs> we found out that. Um, Joe, Joe, Joe McGovern, uh, he'd, he'd come back to us. He was the range taker before me. And he <coughs> had a knee that he went out with a cartilage pump. Anyway, um, Bob Heath had been hit badly. And uh, Joe McGovern said, well... If we could get down those bloody steps, there was, there was, I don't know how many steps there, might have been a hundred down, and there was a house down there, and it was an RAP. It was only, uh, might have only been uh, 40 metres away, if it was that. <coughs> and uh, Joe gets hold of bloody Bob, and Joe's sitting on his ass, and he's got his arms around, he's, um, Bob, and he's, he's dragging him from one step down to the next bugger, and Joe says, I'll get you down there if it kills me. And Bob said, would you mind just letting me go and let me die in peace? Anyway, they got down there all right, and um, they were evacuated. The sergeant, <coughs> he was hit low down in the tummy and he told us afterwards after the war actually we didn't see him he was evacuated and sent home uh, yeah he said they uh, bloke examined me and said uh, are you married he said yeah she got any kids no the doctor said that's a pity because he said you won't be having any but mick said i've had a lot of fun trying <laughs> and <coughs> Uh, the two little blokes in the uh, oven, uh, one of them had sustained bomb um, uh, damage, uh, concussion from bombs, which meant they were bloody close to him. He'd, he'd, it was the third time he'd, he'd struck that, and so he came home, and his mate, Sefton, uh, he had, had a broken... Uh, he was wounded in the jaw and it was, was broke his plate. Uh, he, he <coughs> both of them never came back to us. The sergeant, <laughs> who wasn't going to have kids, he didn't come back. Uh, that's three. The other two didn't come back. Uh, oh, oh. Bill, I, I think one might have, but the. Out of the five, there was four, and the place was just true and, uh, with bloody damage of all kinds. We got there and we were running around looking, trying to find the blokes or find out what had happened. It was a horrible experience, really. A chance come across to drive the commanding officer of D Company in a jeep, and I, I left the carriers and went into D Company. I was driving Major uh, Arthur Slee. Sandy Slee. He was a wonderful person. Uh, 
easy to handle. He used to call me that bloody kid. And he was only 24 himself. Um, he was killed around about May in Casino. But he was one of the finest officers I'd ever served under. He came from Westport. I think his parents owned a jeweler shop in Westport. But if you're ever on leave, he's always come up to you and asked you if you had enough money to go on leave. So our headquarters on Route, I think it was Route 6 that went to the casino. And I think our headquarters would be about 700, 800 metres, probably. Yeah, it might have been a kilometre off the main road before you hit casino. You go out and if there's a picket necessary in the house you're in, you go out and take your turn on the picket line. Um, sometimes you know, I drive right up to the front line in the jeep, taking a new officer out or new uh, reinforcement out. Didn't stay there long. <laughs> you collapse the windscreen down, and there was a cover to stop the reflection go over. And um, I had my Tommy gun, and sometimes they let me have a a brain gun, a black person with a brain gun. But May, um, Major Slee was uh, his most considerate person I ever had. You know, I mean, I drove in some sticky positions. But, um, chains on the whole four wheels and all spinning on that and I was getting stuck and stuck and he he walked in front of me with a uh, a little torch thing to show me show me where the centre of the road was and and he said for goodness sake Briggs he said try and keep the truck and I said I'm doing my best he said okay <laughs> I, I told you about the road while driving down to Route 6 and I had to turn, there was a 90 degree turn. I arrived at the corner at the same time as the shell and the jeep went and I come out of that away with the fairies and uh, minor wounds, minor scratches. And from there uh, I don't know if someone picked me up or whether I went back to the MDS or ADS it was, fifth field ADS. And I ended up in the three general hospital at Caserta. Caserta was south of uh, Casino, um, just north of Naples. An incident that happened on this hill 175 uh, concerning Norm and I, um, we always had sentries out, of course, at night and during the day, and there's always two passwords. You had a password and a reply, you see, and they changed about every week. Uh, as well as sentries, we often had someone out in front, further out in front, in a listening post, and we all took a turn at that, except our platoon commander and our uh, stretcher-bearer, who was a conscientious objector. But no one worried one little bit about him. He wouldn't handle a rifle, or, or, but he, he was a, a godsend. Um, anyhow, um, on this occasion, we used to get a few mortars coming over to that position every night, during the night. And um, we always had 
twice during the day you have a period of stand-to, first thing in the morning, just as the first glimmers of daylight, I'd give the order stand-to, and everyone, uh, usually in the position where they are, they sang her, but they take up a defensive position and... and uh, and the same thing in the evening, just over that period from daylight till dark, you do the same thing again. It keeps everyone on their toes, and that is the most likely time for an attack to come in. So on this occasion, uh, one of the, while the morning one was on, one of the boys said, oh, I think Norm's Sanger took a direct hit there a while ago. And I said, oh, well, he's lucky because he's out on on listening post. So I used to just check on them, everyone at that stage, quietly. And um, so I went forward and said to Norm, right, you can come back now. And I said, I believe your Sanger's been hit. Um, and so we walked over to it and sure enough, it was hit. Uh, <laughs> just a mess, all his gear blown to bits and so on. Uh, but he was okay. So we were standing there sort of talking about this, um, thinking how lucky he was, and we just let our guard down for a minute or two, uh, and it got light enough for a German machine gunner to see it. And he opened up on us with a Spandau, uh, which has a rate of fire of, uh, oh goodness knows, well over a thousand round a minute, and they fire a lot of tracer. It's fed with a belt. Um, and, uh, and of course the tracer glows in the, and you can see them coming. <laughs> so we took off. And Norm always says, the first time we ran away from the enemy. <laughs> and we did, I'll tell you what, down the hill. And it was only a one-way track down through some rocks and so on, but we went down to a breast. <laughs> until we got into some cover, you know, and then we burst out laughing at how silly it all looked. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's some, one of the things that you remember. Uh, how, I know a bullet, I, you know, you always, at the stand-to period, always put your web gear back on. And I, we carried our shovels down between our back and slid them down the back and sorts of things. It's just an ordinary army shovel. And you had the blade of the shovel putting, turning back. I know a bullet hit the shovel <laughs> and ricocheted off. Luckily it ricocheted the right way. Um, but we carried our picks the same way. And, you know, they were just an ordinary pick like you'd see on the roads today with a long handle. And when you ran with one stug, they bored into your back. Um, and the bottom of them, when you ran, they hit the back of your legs. And, you know, they were terrible, really. They were good for, you know, they were good tools, all right. But you needed something a bit different. We were lucky. We had uh, uh, a major, and he was a, he was a gentleman, this bloke. Uh, I think his name was Jeff Armstrong. He was a, a remarkable bloke. At casino, he would get out in the rubble with um, another bloke who was a, a sniper in our outfit. He was a, 
Lance Corporal, but he used to talk so dogmatically that they or he had the nickname, the Colonel, Colonel Drews. And uh, Drews and Armstrong would go out in the rubble before first light and uh, come in after first light. And one of them, I think it was Armstrong, said, this Drews, he said, he's an incredible bloke. He had a wall eye. I think he'd been kicked in the face with by a horse or something, and he probably only had sight in one eye. <coughs> but it was good sight. And that's why. And those kind of blokes are, are very accurate. There. And uh, Armstrong said, "Well, we spent a fortnight out there every day." And he said, uh, "You're not always sure if you get a kill." But he said, "I reckon my mate." got 14 hits in a fortnight, which is an incredible bloody thing, yeah. And the <coughs> Armstrong came back one night and he had a bit of a gouge here and one of his pips had been shot off his shoulder. Uh, that's how close he was <coughs> to being... Uh, see, it was sniper against sniper virtually, yeah. And eventually... We'd been up there for about two or three weeks and eventually sent, sent us back out for a rest and a clean-up because none of us had, a, had any showers or anything for about three weeks. And they sent us out and had a clean-up and uh, because we were waiting for the bombing of the casino, it was the casino itself, they decided they were going to bomb the casino. And so we went out and had a clean-up and a shower and then we come back into the position again and waited for the for them to bomb the city, the town of Casino. Um, we stayed in that position for for quite a long time, and then went out for a rest, and came back under the same place again. And we hadn't been back more than a few days, and it became fine enough for the bombers to come in. We were waiting two or three weeks for. Uh, weather fine enough for the bombers to come over to bomb the and see these poor engine jobs they came from outside Italy they they they, they came from uh, Tripoli or somewhere somewhere on the North African coast away over towards Tunisia so we said uh, they said to us well before daylight you were to pull back a thousand yards along the side of the mountain so we did that, just left all our gear there. Uh, we walked, I don't think we measured it out or anything, we walked back what we thought was a thousand yards um, and uh, just lay on the ground. And the bombing was due to start at eight o'clock, if I remember rightly. And it was to be the heaviest saturation bombing the world had ever seen. We were in this forward area near the village and near, near the monastery, <coughs> there was a big dip between us and the monastery, and uh, <coughs> they said, uh, there'll be bombers over such and such a time this morning, and uh, all troops will withdraw a thousand metres, because the slight inaccuracies with the dropping of bombs. 
Well, we were on a ridge, but which went down onto a plain, and uh, there wasn't a thousand metres there. We went back about five hundred metres, and you couldn't dig uh, in because it was all rock. But you could pick up loose rocks and build a, a bit of a wall around you. They could, they were called sangers. I think that's an Indian word. And we saw, I was at McNally when we watched the bombing. I mean, 200 planes in the air going down, going back, going down. You'd never, you'd never see it today. You know. And the first uh, squadron of planes came over and they dropped their bombs smack on the village. And, uh, you know, we could see this and you could see the plane, the bombs come out of the planes and go down. And, and I know I thought, one, there was going to be nothing left, you know, this will be a walkover. We got out of our singers to watch this bloody thing going on. <coughs> and uh, some of the bombs were dropping pretty close to us, so we're in and out of our singers for a considerable time. See, wave after wave of these came, and there might be a, a five-minute break between the next wave and... And uh, some of them, uh, most of them were being uh, dropped from about 10,000 feet. There was four engine jobs and two engine jobs. Um, there were a thousand guns lined up behind us to help us with the, once the bombing finished. Uh, the second squadron of planes came over and one of them at least dropped his bombs right on our artillery way back, three mile more back behind us. Um, that didn't do our morale any good at all. Um, and uh, they just kept coming and coming and coming, these planes. Our whole valley filled up with dust uh, and they somehow got over the head and, and let them go. And um, I think that was probably the most trying time for me. The most memorable thing about the, the Yanks was when they bombed Casino and the buckers, they bombed us uh, in a pretty generous way. Uh, we were very rude, to say the least. But I think I can't believe that those Americans would bomb us for amusement. Uh, I think their training was not up to the standard that the British was, and that's why that happened. Some of these other fellows might hold a different view from me, and, and I'll, I'll welcome it if they do. Uh, I'll respect it. But that's my thinking. These planes came in and shelled and bombed Casino. It was a sight. The, the ground shook and the bombs fell. Some of them fell short. Some of them fell on the Indians further over. Uh, no, it, was, it was quite frightening, really. One thing about having some rank is that you become responsible. And I, I remember some men started praying and others started crying 
and um, part way through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run, and I yelled out to him to stop, and he did. And I said, get back here, and he got back, came back, and he was tears streaming down his face, and he was in a pretty bad state. And, and of course, the <laughs> bombs were all around us. Yeah, that's right. No, it was... Uh, uh, it was really quite uh, incredible. Um, for the first time I saw grown men cry. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I tell you what, by that time I was platoon sergeant, strange to say. Um, and uh, I just had my 22nd birthday, just uh, a short time before we did the attack. Um, and so, I, I tell you what, I had to use all my authority to, to hold the guys yeah. uh, together take, uh, under, the, under that bombing. Was, we were totally in the open. Um, yeah, it was uh, a lasting memory and not a pleasant one, and it lasted yanks. We had the utmost confidence in the RAF. But we learn to have less confidence in the nation. They drop their bombs anyway. Uh, I was a newer soldier then. I, I learnt a few things as time went along, uh, and you know what you go, what to expect, and you can handle it a bit. But uh, in the early stages, it's uh, it's very confusing. It was it was our lot, uh, and we we had been attested. I think that's fairly important. We had been attested, so we were not entitled to flinch. But I have to admit, secretly, I did. I was scared and let that be no secret. Uh, Bob and his crew volunteered to stay put. So they were right there, uh, just on the edge of Casino, uh, right through the bombing. And uh, I think, Bob, uh, you were the means, or your gun was, of taking out so many of the... Uh, Spangau, uh, this machine gun nest yeah. uh, that allowed C Company to capture uh, yeah. the Castle Hill. Castle Hill, that was right. You've got to remember the Germans had been there for months and they had the, uh, even the rangers and everything were all itemised. They knew exactly uh, how to set all their weapons and they were all sighted to cover every eventuality. Um, and in the meantime, Bob and his crew had sighted so many of these before the action started. Um, and so they remained in place. And as soon as the uh, barrage had finished, they took these machine gun nests out with a 75mm. What, what happened was we stayed till the first lot of bombers, first flight of bombers come over. 
like everybody was withdrawn off out of the hill and we stayed there just uh, Gunner and his mate and myself and one of them uh, one of them was from Tiamuta here actually his name was Arthur Jourdain they had, had this they had he and the chap Taylor who was also in that platoon had the, the saw was that Gil Taylor? Gil Taylor, Gil Taylor, and Arthur Jourdain, and it was um, the, they were the blokes that stayed with me. If, I tell you what, I never felt so lonely in all my life, knowing mm -hmm. that we we three blokes were the forward troops of the of the army fighting fight the war, mm -hmm. and the uh, anyhow, when the we saw the first lot of bombs come out of the planes, and they were coming out there, and they were, they were bombing over here. I said, the hell's sake, get fire that bloody gun before something happens in case that bloody bombs come down here. <laughs> but anyhow, we, we achieved what we wanted. The, the pillbox, which was going to be in the direct uh, approach to the troops from the 25th Battalion that were going to attack there, we, we just uh, eliminated them and then we got the hell out of it. <laughs> but, you know, eventually the bombing stopped. And we just walked back along the hillside, the mountainside, and, and back to our old positions. When we were told to go forward again, they said, uh, go with considerable caution because we've got a suspicion that the enemy knew that you people had withdrawn, and so when the bombing stopped, they rushed out and occupied your positions. So we went forward at the ready, and we had a legendary bloke, uh, Tracker Jones, and our platoon of Maori, now Pui bloke, he, uh, he was leading the way. He was a very good soldier. And there was a body there. And he puts a burst of Tommy gun into it, and it was the sergeant's pack. And the sergeant was the grizzliest bastard you'd meet in a day's march. <laughs> And he didn't know who had done it, and he wasn't told. And of course, he wasn't thought realised at the time that after, after the bombing, there's no show of getting through casino. It's just heaps of rubble everywhere. There were no roads left, there just heaps of rubble. There wasn't a single tree, not a tree, not a blade of grass, nothing at casino. It was gone. Nothing left. Nothing, 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 just the bloody yeah, shambles. The smithereens. Oh, it, and the monastery was was well shattered on the ground. Yeah. They bombed that first, of course, before the town. And after it was all over, this tremendous display of British, British and American air power, the skies were empty. We're back in Big Data in the afternoon, everything's quiet. And over comes one lone German fighter. Now, I had to admire this joker for the guts. Sort of thumbed his nose with a hole. And he came over and he strapped our lines. Everybody gets out, friend comes out, puts them on the mounting, banging away. And he took off and Shortly afterwards, overcame one of those little Piper Cubs that used the artillery used for spotting, and he was buzzing around, turning around, and some joker let fly at him. 
Back to still he was. Cut it out, you silly bug, it's wonderful. No, it's not, it's a bloody yank. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can still hear it. And of course, it got shut down quickly, and the yank landed on the road just up above me, and he let, let people down the ground know exactly what he was all going to do. Because I mean, the Piper Club was probably top speed, what, 60 miles an hour? <laughs> Easiest thing in the world to hit. <laughs> Next episode of Courage and Valour is entitled Casino Part 2, where the troops move forward from their static positions and into the ruins of Casino to try and wrestle the destroyed town out of German hands. In this episode, you've heard from Colin Murray, Harry Hopping, Galvin Garmansway, Fred Blank, Ted Bluey Homewood, Charlie Honeycomb, Bob O'Brien, Morris Pratt, John Bell, Aubrey Belzer, Jack Cummins, Pat Green, Gordon Briggs and Norm Harris. Grateful acknowledgements to all those who have taken part in the series and to the Tiawa Mutu branch of the Royal New Zealand Returned and Services Association for their support. We'd like to thank Richard Carstens for providing additional recorded material for this episode. And thanks also to Hurima Fraser and the 28 Māori Battalion Association. The recordings for this episode were written, edited and produced by Dave Homewood.